It is, let's see, Wednesday, the 25th of April, 2018. These lights in the studio are blinding me, but nevertheless, this is the promotional malpractice live chat, and my name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Good Lord. I can barely see. Uh, today on the podcast, we will get to, let's see, some UFC AC stuff, Bellator 198, Leslie Smith versus UFC, really whatever you want to get to, best place to get your questions in, two different ways you can do it. One, where this window is embedded on MMA fighting, you can go there and you can put a question in, comments that turn green, get priority, but not exclusivity. And then you can shoot me a tweet at L Thomas News, and I will get to them at the end, about 15 minutes or so at the end of the program. Now, we're going to start today's program a little bit differently. If the camera's a little wonky, it's because I'm having trouble adjusting it. Not the focus, but you can see it's kind of tilted this way. It's I've been messing with it for an hour. I can't get it right, so just deal with it. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. But in any case, uh, I want to start with a mea culpa. So somebody asked me last week, Ah, who was that? You know, I might be able to find their email. As I do that, let me look this up. Um, somebody asked me a question. And the question was, hey, Luke, you had, I think, two or three weeks ago suggested that Zabit Megamed Sharapov is a very, very talented fighter, but that he might have some finishing issues that he needs to address. And my point, or the, yeah, and the, 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 the reader's point, I think it was an email that I got, was something to the effect of, well, is that really true? I mean, if you look at his finishing record, it's pretty exemplary. Sure, he didn't get the finish against Kyle Bokniak, but he's a tough guy. And my response was, right, but he also had problems against Shaman Morais. So then I got a couple of notes being like, mm, you should relook at that, Luke. Uh, he actually finished Shaman Morais, which is true. I had totally misremembered the ending of that fight. I had forgotten he had a finish prior to that one in his UFC debut. In fact... Of the three UFC fights he's had, he only didn't get the finish in one of them, which was against a near rabid dog, and I say that as a complimentary way, against Kyle Bokniak. So what does that tell you? What it tells you is, as I pull this up here, oh, God, uh, I can't do it on this computer. I can do it on my other one. Oh, you know what? I might be able to do it here. Um, what that tells you is I should have more closely examined his record. I shouldn't have just gone on what I thought when my memory was. I got it wrong. I botched it. Now, people write me all the time disagreeing with me, and that's fine. I, there's No one's going to have a consensus of opinion. But if I try to make an argument constructed off phony things, uh, either by negligence, error, or malfeasance, I deserve to be called out on it. I was. And so I'm correcting the record to say I was wrong. This person was right. They got it right. I rescind my argument about his finishing ability. Uh Maybe it's true that he does, he has a finishing issue, but there's not enough evidence to conclude that, certainly not based on what I was saying. Let me find it right here. I want to read this person's name out because it deserves to be read. I'll just read their first name. Here we go. Uh, hold on. Well, now I can't find it. God damn it. I can't find it. In any case, that person knows who they are, and I appreciate them correcting the record. So I want to start today's chat by noting that I got it wrong, being held accountable, and making that the order of priority. All right? All right. With that out of the way, let us get to the questions for today. 
All right. First question. Bellator, Fedor versus Mir. Your prediction for the ratings. Wow, I hadn't even thought of it. What is the number that would make you say, sadly, OF, Bellator ain't going to be around for long? Bonus question. Do you think Fedor versus Mir will be entertaining or otherwise have some redeeming value? Or it will be a snoozer old dudes fighting past their prime? Um, I do think it'll be entertaining. I just think it'll be short. So it'll be fine. And it may even be a little bit sloppy, but I don't think it's going to go long. You never know, I suppose. But my hunch is that that'll go pretty quickly. Fedor just takes a lot of risks. And and to an extent, Mir will oblige people who do that. So my, my hunch is that one won't go very long. Um. But that's that. What, what, what would the number be if I would say, oh, wow. I mean, anything around 500,000 would be kind of bad. Anything less than that would be really bad. Um, not including CMT's boost, whatever that ends up being, if they're going to simulcast it. So, um, so yeah, it'd be somewhere in that ballpark. Anything above 700,000, I suppose, is probably okay, right? Because that's about what the first one did. And then if you don't count CMT numbers, so somewhere along those lines, probably okay. You know, high to mid 700,000s is kind of what Paramount does. There are exceptions, of course, but uh, any kind of average like that is on the higher end of what that network currently pulls. So just keep that in mind from what I can from what I can tell anyway. So yeah, that, that was what I would say. Anything 500,000 would be, ugh, anything less would be straight up disaster. Again, not including CMT numbers. And my hunch is that Fedor versus Mir might be a little bit not great. I mean, it's probably it'd probably just fine, but it, it, there's a chance that it's not. But in either case, my hunch is that it doesn't go very long. Fedor takes risks, and Mir is known to oblige people in that in that capacity. So, so there you go. Um. These appear to be the same question follow-ups. Hi, Luke. On the MMA Hour on Monday, Frank Mir brought up such a fascinating point about Fedor. He said that Fedor has struggled so much over the past few years because fighting in a cage does not suit his style as opposed to fighting in a ring, e.g. pride. He said Fedor has not adapted his game well at all, and you can see a parallel between uh, when he started fighting in a cage. His performance has started to drop off as he does not fight well against it, using it for striking, using it to get back up. He also pointed out his background, his sambo, there are no walls, it is an open mat. And then went on to say how, 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 how you have never seen submissions against the cage as it limits a jiu-jitsu specialist movement from the bottom. I thought this was an interesting point. Even Ariel said he had never heard anyone mention that point about Fatal before. Neither have I. What are your thoughts on what Mir said? Also, how do you see this fight going? I see it being probably a striking affair. You might see Mir look for a takedown, but my hunch is they're going to slug it out. Uh, at least at least for the first half of the fight, if not longer. Um, I think I think Fedor is going, I think Mir is going to try and get a sense of Fedor's speed, what it looks like when you're actually in there, and then make an adjustment accordingly, either continue to stay with him or take him to the ground, but there'll be a period there where he's reading it. Um, so that's how I would imagine it going. But that is a really interesting point, and he's right. Sambo does not have a wall. And I don't think he ever really fundamentally adapted who he was to that. However, there's probably that's a great point. I, I I would have to think more about it, but it sounds like there might be something to that. Um, I would also suggest to you that on top of that, he got a little bit older. 
he was always fighting as a smaller heavyweight, and and I think that over time, um, that began to be a bit of a problem. As not necessarily the heavyweights got dramatically bigger, although in some cases they did, but that um, they got they were maybe the same size, but their overall skill level was better. Like the game got better as he got older. Um, I mean, how old was he? Let me see this now. He was super old, but. Let me just verify this. He's 41 now, and he came to the States and started competing around. I mean, you want to count the, I guess you are, I, I guess you could count the, how about we count the Tim Sylvia fight, which was 10 years ago. So he's 31 at the time, which he won. And the Arlovsky fight, which was in a ring, which he won. The Brett Rogers won. He was about 32 or so, give or take, 31, 32. He did poorly, and then at about 33-ish, he had that run against Fabricio Antonio and Dan Henderson. Now, why did he lose the Fabricio fight? He was reckless with his position against the cage. Maybe that's part of it, right? The other part, and of course, sort of diving into his garden the way he did. Antonio Silva, the big reason for me was because Silva was bigger than him, took him down past his guard into mount, and he couldn't do a whole lot about it. And the Dan Henderson one, he just slugged it out with him uh, and then lost a gunfight, although he, he nearly won it. But that was sort of that live by the sword, die by the sword. At that point, I don't think he was who he was previously when he was in his early to mid or mid to late 20s. Because then he goes on to beat Monson, Ishii, Hizo, uh, Singh Jaideep, and then Fabio Maldonado, but he should have lost that one. And then Matt Mitrion. So my read on it is, is that the three fights he lost in the cage maybe a couple of them, the Verdum and Henderson fight, because he did get KO'd in that scramble against the fence. Maybe that has something to do with it. But the Antonio Silva one probably is a better story of that being size. And even the Fabricio Verdum guard story, the bigger issue there to me was that he just didn't take for Verdum's guard seriously. Verdum, for a heavyweight guard, it's probably the best. Who has the best heavyweight guard of all time? Fabricio Verdum. I know some people had this big debate about it. People thought it was Noguera when they fought, and then he smoked Noguera. Verdum's, Verdum's guard is well beyond anybody else's at heavyweight, not even close. Overall jiu-jitsu ability, I would say the same, but in particular, his guard is that good. So it's like, how much that had to do with the cage? Yes, he was up against it. And I will say he... How about this? To Frank's theory, I would say it probably plays a part in two of those wins, but I don't think it's the explanatory reason. I think there's probably several reasons. Yes, the positioning of Verdum against the cage there, you'll call that you'll recall that for uh Fedor wasn't managing that space properly, and that's what got him. Uh and then Den Henderson won, it was right up against that fence and how they managed it. So he wasn't treating the open space properly. Uh, but in the silver one, I think it was clearly much more an issue of size. And even Verdum, it's also not just that's the other reasons as well. You're dealing with a bigger guy, stronger, uh an incredible uh, and highly unusual guard, and so on and so forth. And at that point, he just kind of got old, right? So and it took two years off and everything else. Um, but it's an interesting theory. It's, it's certainly something that we need to consider as something we, we, that we hadn't before. And at this point, it's probably too late to really make any kind of adjustment to those issues. But that's a – Frank's a smart guy, man. Frank has always been a really bright guy. Frank has always been one of these guys who 
sees the world uniquely and for better or for worse, you know, I mean, if when you see the world uniquely, that often leads you to into these sort of bizarre positions. I think Eddie Bravo's a case like that. You know, his understanding of the wider world, I think, is probably worth a second look uh, or rather, I should say, not a second look, um, uh, a skeptical look. But I think that open mind that he has and his willingness to see things differently enabled him to craft a style of jujitsu that while its intended purpose was initially for MMA, and I don't think that panned out very much anyway, it certainly has been very true that those guys were worthy of respect inside the jiu-jitsu world itself without the gi. And of course, some of his criticisms about the gi were true. He had this sense about things that, and this open-mindedness to certain ideas and this kind of vision that no one else had that enabled him to come up with some really interesting and ultimately some very excellent ideas. And uh, Frank's another one of those guys, not that I I don't know if he believes in flat earth, but, you know, he's got these really intense ideas about personal security. Um, Dana White told Dan Steinberg of the Washington Post years ago that for a while, um, Frank Muir had to get certain licenses to bring weapons to his locker room because he always wanted to have weapons on him at all times. You know, he's just he has a very different worldview, but it bleeds over into stuff like this where they see things that the rest of us don't. Interesting. Smart guy. Lightweight division grapplers. Hi, Luke. Hope you are well. I slept poorly last night, but that's not unusual. Last week, I questioned Lee's merits to be in the top five of the lightweight division. Well, he sure showed me this person, right? Excellent performance, and he is firmly in that top five now. Do you think Lee and Habib are the top two wrestlers in the division? If so, how do their styles differ? And which one has the best? Quote, uh, A, takedowns, Habib. Takedown defense, Habib. Ground and pound. That's That's a tougher one. And then submission, Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee is certainly better at submissions. Um, let me let me uh, send you to a video that BJJ Scout did, I think today, probably today, where he talks a little bit about this. And it's something I've made before. Nobody has takedowns like Habib Nurmagomedov in MMA. Nobody. Nobody. Now, when you ask who has the best takedowns, Riddle me this. Imagine you had a better takedown percentage than I did, but you only had one or two takedowns, right? You were just really good with them. Now imagine, and this may not, I'm not saying this is exactly the case here. I'm just using this to illustrate an example. Now imagine I I have a somewhat less takedown percentage um, than you, not significantly, just a little bit, but less than you. But I have all different kinds of takedowns. Like I can go a lot of different directions and I can do a lot of different things, right? Who's got the better takedowns? Now that complicates the debate a little bit. But what if I added that? Um, I'll leave it there. That will complicate the debate. Here's my point with Kevin Lee. Uh, he is certainly very, very capable with the takedowns that he has, but he has a much narrower universe of options to go to. His takedown percentage is higher, um, but I don't think he goes for as many. His game is not as centrally reliant upon them. Habib Nurmagomedov's takedown defense, uh, or rather takedown percentage, is not as high as you would think. It's, a, it's, it's less than 50%. However, he can do things that nobody else can do. Right? He's got all the takedowns that everybody else does, and when those don't work, he's got a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. 
ninth option. He has upper body takedowns. He has lower body takedowns. He can do it off a high crotch single leg sweep. He can do it off a double leg. He can do it off Haraya Goshi. He can do it off an Uchimata. He can do it from a body lock trip. He can do, I mean, he can do everything. Nobody has takedowns like that. I think what you can say is Kevin Lee has a narrower subset of takedowns that he can reliably go to and he can use them very effectively. But if you're asking who has the most complete and devastating takedown arsenal, for me, it's Habib Nurmagomedov. I, don't, I think he is absolutely peerless in that regard. Takedown defense, <clears throat> I think also something to consider, historically speaking, that's going to be Habib. However, a major caveat on that one is that Kevin Lee's game is getting better every single time you see him. Folks, forget this. He's not 32 years old. He's 25. He's 25 years old. So in three years, imagine how good he's going to be. Right? I mean, this is, these are these guys at 25, they get better miraculously overnight when they train like serious pros and dedicated craftsmen. So I would say historically that's true about Habib. We'll see it, how true it is going forward. Interesting one there. The ground and pound offense. For me, I'm going to say Kevin Lee. And the reason why is I think the kind of ground and pound that Habib does is beyond devastating. Um, but to me... A lot of what he does is this a mental exhaustion game where he's pounding on you, but then he's taking out your base as you're trying to build it, or he's controlling a wrist so you can't move it, or he's riding a leg to take it away from you so you can't build a structure to stand. Kevin Lee is doing a lot less of that. He's passing position and then achieving something dominant and then forcing you to climb out of it. And while you're climbing out of it, that's when he's attacking you. Right, so think about this. If you're, if somebody, um, okay, how about this? If somebody is mounted on top of you, right, and you're the same size, I mean, I mean, literally the exact same size. I'm not talking about two fighters who weigh in and then they're 50 pounds different after weighing. No, no, two people the exact same size. If one person has mounted the other and the skill level is the same, they're going to be able. The person underneath, if they have good mount defense once they've been mounted or, you know, some kind of guard retention, they're going to be able to achieve a lot very quickly in terms of the underneath position. Now, imagine I had two people with the exact same skill level, but this person is 200 pounds. This person is 100 pounds. Now, how quickly is this person going to be able to get out? Not very quickly, right? And the idea is that they can't just, they can't just get an elbow across the hip right away. They might have to scoot their hip, uh, shoulders up a little bit and then slide it across, and that might take time. And they might have to push a little bit, and that might take time as they keep scooting. And then they might be able to just sneak a knee through uh, just a little bit, and then they have to keep pushing, and then they slide another way, and then the other knee comes through, and then they come back. They have to climb to a position, right? That's how you have to do it with anybody good. And I'm talking about size differential here. So imagine that's the case. My point being is Kevin Lee may or may not be the same size as some of these guys, but he has a clear skill differential over some of them in that mount position and in that guard passing position. And what he does is he he does try to keep the position, but he puts himself in a position to unload maximum offense while he forces you through skill differential, not necessarily size, to incrementally find your way out of mount um, versus this like pull and drag game that Habib does. Both are nightmarish. I mean, we're talking about, you know, almost maybe two different sides of the same coin. But for me, that ground and pound offense, if you have to, and I went over this on Monday, Monday Morning Analyst, 
If you're Edson Barboza, you have to occupy your hands with either getting an elbow to the ground, a hand to the ground, an elbow and a, and a forearm across the hips, a hand on a knee to push so you can pull your leg out and come back around and shrimp. He has to climb back. He can't get he can't shrimp all the way out and then recapture guard. He has to do it very slowly. And in that time, Kevin Lee might hold position. He might reclaim position. Meanwhile, more or less, because he doesn't have to put his hands on the mat because his balance is so good, he can then pound on you. And then, of course, he has the gift wraps that he sets up when he puts a hand, and then they put a hand, and then he recaptures the wrist for the, for the gift wrap. That, to me, is better. It's just it's, it's, it's nightmarish, man. Just getting out of mount is hard. Right, much less with somebody 25 athletic and good at holding that position, drilling you in the teeth. Uh, and then submission game, Kevin Lee, I think is better. Uh, I think he's better about finding the back. Uh, I think he's better about probably. I mean, you know, in the end, you can see what their stats say, but just who has a natural sort of position and feel for those things, and who's willing to take more risks or at least find more positions on the body to do that. I think it's Kevin Lee. Do you think there are any other fighters at the top of the division who can hang with either of them from a wrestling point of view? Sure. I think Eddie Alvarez might be able to. We'll see. Uh, maybe Justin Gaethje. Gaethje seems to have an excellent wrestling pedigree, but seems to rarely use it. And Poirier must have high-level wrestling, given he managed to take Gaethje down on the mat. Plus, Eddie Alvarez has been a solid wrestler. How do you rate the wrestling of Connor, Tony, and Nate Diaz in comparison also? Connor, not that great. Uh, Nate Diaz, not that great. Uh, Tony, probably for the most part. I think Tony um, Tony gets better as the fight goes on when he really begins to get a timing on someone's entries. You look at the Rafael Dos Anjos fight. By those later rounds, he was no-selling anything RDA was trying to do. He kind of gets warmed up in that regard. So, so to me, Tony would clearly be the better of those. And then relative to Gaethje, hard to say since Gaethje uses so only uses it defensively for the most part. But you sure all those guys are gonna pretty good wrestling with Connor and Nate Diaz being a little bit different. I don't think that the wrestling is uh, on the level of um, certainly not Gaethje and Eddie's and Tony's. Uh, Poirier, we'll see. All right, but you, as you can tell, it's a lot of guys who one person has this and one person has this, but on another level, it's like this. And then on another level, it's like that. Lightweight is awesome. It's the best division. All right, Derek Lewis versus Nganu. Luke, what fight do you think of... What? What do you think of this fight now that it has been booked? I think like the rest of you, I'm pretty excited about it. Who do you have winning? Probably Nganu. And general thoughts. Um, great addition to that card. Let's pull that card up. UFC 226, right? that card up so here we have steve Miocic, daniel cormier max holloway brian ortega Rafael sunsell versus rob font gokan saki versus khalil roundtree yancey Medeiros versus Derek. excuse me mike perry and then francis Ngannou versus Derek lewis also apparently uh, bohashinia versus uri hall will be added to this card as well um here's what i like about it number one it's a great fight on its own merits Number two, it fits in with the rest of the card, God forbid, in case there's some kind of issue with the main event. There is at least some kind of heavyweight fight that could potentially still go forward, right? Uh, you couldn't do a light heavyweight at that point, but you could still do a heavyweight contest, so at least one of the headliners would still be able to be in there, which I can't believe is something we have to think about these days in MMA, but it, it really is, in fact. 
in that case. Uh, let's see. Right. So, um, so I like that aspect of it. Uh, and, and it's, of course, look, it's a grudge match. It'll be two huge dudes swinging. It's going to be a question of uh, what's the best thing about Francis Ngannou? He hits hard and he's a very quick learner. What's the best thing about the Black Beast? He hits hard and is more perseverant in fights than people realize. He is, again, another guy like one of these Yuel Romero types who kind of picks their spots, picks their spots, picks their spots, waits and waits and waits, and then finds it and then they can do a lot more damage because when they find their opening they just have a real keen sense about when to go and when not to go and they can beat guys they ordinarily if they were not being as responsive to that reality about themselves would not do as well and that's not what you have here you have a guy who's really good about just finding the right moment to uh, unleash hell on his cohorts so um i love it i love everything about it i'm gonna wait and see what the pre-fight not information, but you always learn something new about these guys and the way they train and lead up to any of these kind of kinds of contests. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say beyond that. You know, I mean, I think all the, all the hopes and dreams I have for this contest are probably just the same ones you do. So, uh, last part, Luke, I cannot help but feel this fight has been booked for the wrong location. I really think it should be a five round main event in Mexico city. Get it. All right. Fantasy fights. Kevin Lee versus Connor. Depends how Lee wanted to fight. All these guys, it depends on how Lee wants to fight. And also, Connor hasn't fought in so long. God, I don't even know what to say about that one. Just to tilt everybody, I'll say Kevin Lee. Askren versus Rory, I'll pick Rory. Koreshkov versus Masvidal, I'll pick Masvidal. Chandler versus Diaz, I'll pick Chandler. And then Prime Bisping versus Prime Nick Diaz. Ooh. Probably Prime Nick Diaz. Well, Prime Nick Diaz was also more of a welterweight. So that's a little so then maybe I would go Prime Bisping. Here we are. USADA and the UFC JDS and Little Nog. Oh, do I have it here in front of me? Mm. I need to get it. There's a book I want to show you guys. JDS and Lil Nog recently got their USADA suspension reduced due to contaminated supplements that led to their failed drug tests. Once again, USADA pulled the trigger too early and seriously affected the career of two fighters in the dawn of their lives as elite competitors. USADA have done it before and they will do it again, right? This seriously affects the UFC and their business. If it was up to you, what should the UFC do about it? Obviously, USADA has to be independent. But do you think the UFC and other sports organizations can go into a dialogue with them on how they handle these cases? At least so that innocent athletes get punished by being labeled as cheaters before the final verdict. I think the UFC and USADA can improve their partnership. Hmm. That's a tough one to answer. Uh, there, so there are logistical hurdles and there are other kinds of hurdles to this, which is... Um, I, I mean, obviously the athletes are entitled to a much greater degree of privacy than they have been afforded here. Um, and this is a constant problem. And as you note, this will go on because that's just what's going to happen. Um, because the athletes have no rights or very few anyway. 
And uh, so, yes, this is going to continue. Uh, in terms of uh, what needs to fix this, um, I think if you're asking me quite candidly, there are probably some things they could do, right? I mean, you can say, well, this should be he uh, held private until the adjudication is over and then the athlete can speak about it once it's all been revealed that to be um, um, not a hoax necessarily, but there's no cheating here. This was some other kind of finding. Now, number one, there are always going to be low information voters who suggest that no matter USADA themselves largely exonerating these guys. And when I say largely, the only thing that they're getting them on would be what's called strict liability, where even if you buy, even if I'm in drinking this Coke, I have no idea that there was testosterone in this Coke. I legitimately did not know. And I drank it. Uh, nevertheless, you drank the Coke. Strict liability says it doesn't matter if you knew or you didn't. You put it in your body and you're somehow culpable. I find strict liability to be a really bad way to enforce um, anti-doping, but that's a separate debate for a separate time. That's the only thing they're getting them on is this, is this notion of like, even though you are basically totally innocent, you're not, but it's not for anything related to outright expressed cheating, right? So there's that. Um, they could do that. It would still raise questions about if they got removed from the rankings, why were they removed? Uh, or maybe they wouldn't be removed from the rankings. If they weren't being booked in fights, why weren't they? There would be sort of be some speculation there. Some of this stuff would leak no matter what. So th there would be no perfect system. Let that be clear, right? Um, but I do think that, that the athletes having some kind of representative on their behalf to keep these things private until uh, – remember, all these you hear about are all preliminary ones. And the reality is your reputation is damaged for the entirety of your career. I don't know what JDS's opponents are going to say to him when this is all over. Um, but if they want to, and in the case of Yuval Romero, they have been, constant accusations of steroid use, right? I mean, I never really understand what the argument about USADA is. USADA, by its most important um, defenders, was brought in because it's the highest level of anti-doping, ostensibly. And yet, if that's true, you have people who apparently, you, the average layperson can just look at and tell, and USADA with all of their fancy testing and out of competition testing and 6 a.m. knocks on the door, they can't catch, right? So I mean, which is it, right? Is it working or is it not? Um, and of course, some people say, well, some people can always get away with it, right? Which is technically true, but not the question that we're asking. Um, but look, you want to know my opinion about it? Here's what should happen, and it's not going to because there's no way to enforce such a thing. There, there needs to be some – what was it on the MMA beat that someone asked, what's the one thing you would change in the sport? And the answer was a fighter's union because that's not – people think fighter's union is just about pay or getting rid of Reebok or something, and it's not. Here's another case where that would matter. My, my sense is that even if there were a fighter's union – um, would anti-doping be as strong as it is now? And uh, when I say strong, people all, let me finish the sentence. Would it, would it be as strong as it is now? No. Um, but it would be better. It'd be better for the sport. It'd be better for the athletes. Uh, it'd be better for the consumer. It'd be better for everybody. Uh, now, let me go back to when I say the word strong. When I say the word strong, people think strong means effective. That's not what it means. Strong and sometimes can mean effective. Strong can also mean overbearing, um, ineffective, simply exercising control for the sake of it without any real tactical purpose. Um, but it's stronger. Uh, it's just not better. Uh, 
Stronger does not equal better. You know what? I gotta I gotta show you this book. Hang on just a second. Hang on. All right. Here we go. Sorry about that. I've been reading this book. It's already a little banged up in my bag. Y'all keep thinking I'm the only one out here espousing these ideas, right? That I'm the only guy out here raising questions about USADA, and I'm not. Or it's not even about USADA. Any 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 kind of NADO, um, although USADA is probably better than some of the other ones, at least in their good faith attempt to is the right call to action. But it's more than that. Anti-doping is totally flawed in its current form. Now, people can be like me and think that there might actually be a role for performance-enhancing drugs in sports, although we can't even begin to have that conversation because it's considered so radioactive. And anytime you espouse any kind of unconventional idea, you open yourself up, which I have, to uh, people who decide that they don't really want to hear what you have to say. They want to car- they want to caricaturize um, your or caricature, turn into a caricature, your actual positions, right? So... Uh, that's inevitable, but I want to introduce you to this book here if I can. I'm not being paid for this. I'm, this is no plugola. I'm not. There's no. There's no there there. This is just me giving you a recommendation, right? This is from Paul DeMio and another gentleman. I, I know Paul DeMio. I don't know that someone. Werner Muller. The anti-doping crisis in sport. The reality is as follows: privacy is a show and a disaster. Athletes' rights are not preserved. Innocent victims, when they are completely exonerated, still have suffered uh, total reputational harm. Um, there's a question of even how effective it is in terms of catching or deterring. It is not what you think it is. It is not what you think it is. And now academics are starting to come around to that idea. There ha- we have washed ourselves in the lather of the 1980s drug war of, geez, if we just had more testing and we just had harsher punishments, and we just did more and more and more and more and more and more of that, surely this will solve the problem. And we are going in the opposite direction. Now, what the solution to that is, is these gentlemen want to figure out a new way to do anti-doping. They actually do not espouse some of the ideas that I believe, but they at least want to revisit the conversation that, that needs to be had. You guys out there thinking that just testing these guys at 6 a.m. and watching Tim Kennedy shower his private parts in front of a USADA inspector, and this is going to solve the problem. You are dreaming. You are dreaming. It is solving nothing. It is not doing the work. It is not deterring people. It is not catching the right kinds of people. It is, however, uh, creepy, uh, embarrassing for them, and, and and a complete waste of resources. And to say nothing of how big brotherish it is, uh, and punitive, and harmful to people who are actually innocent, like JDS, like Little Nog. So, so I encourage you. I think the book is out today. The anti-doping crisis in sport causes consequences and solutions. This is an advanced copy. I'm about halfway through. Well, a little more than halfway through it. Um, I encourage you to pick it up, and I encourage you to begin to open your eyes to the fact that the current system that we have is 1980s war, drug war, bull s. That they are just trying. It's a it's a system where you keep losing at the blackjack table, and then you just want to keep upping the ante more and more and more and more, rather than rethinking. Maybe there's a better way to do it. 
UFC Chile. Hi, Luke. What do you think of what will be happening at UFC Chile situation with the pawns pulling out? They call them the pawns. And Usman saying he will only fight a ranked guy with none available. Uh, someone says, wow, did he say he's the o- he will only fight someone who was ranked? What a hypocrite. Well, first of all, he took the fight against Ponzinibbio when he was ranked higher than him. He has consistently fought guys that were not in his, necessarily all that much of his in his interest to fight. I think in a main event slot, asking for somebody who is ranked, by the way, he didn't say ranked above him. He just said ranked. Uh, not necessarily all that unfair a request. And uh, more to the point, if you follow the reporting of Ariel Hawani, who I'm sure we all do, he the UFC is calling him the most avoided fighter in UFC history. People don't want none with him. They don't want it. They don't want it with him. Right. Uh, so it's easy to call him a hypocrite. If you want to ignore all of the facts of the matter, if you want to actually pay attention, it's pretty clear that he is not. And what they'll end up doing. I have no clue. Uh, all right. Devalishvili Simone. Not Simon. Because he is Latino. Uh, all right. Well, Luke, how's the form? I don't know what that means. What's your take on Devalishvili and Simone? I thought when the fight ended, Devalishvili's head looked limp and he seemed to be out, but he made an effort to jump up as if he was with it, and the doctors made him stay down. Mark Goddard said Bruce Buffer asked for the scorecards from the judges, but also said the ref waved the fight off, which the cameras missed. Weird situation, obviously. What are your thoughts? Right. So I spoke to somebody about this who had a really good perspective who was there, uh, whose name I'm not at liberty to divulge, but just so you can dismiss this if you want, um, I suppose. But here is the issue. Um, Why did they ask for the scorecards? Because you have to. In other words, according to what I was told, Liam Kerrigan, you can't see it on camera, but he did apparently wave the fight off. Now, it wasn't visible to you or I, but apparently it did happen. The major issue was that uh, he should have walked over to the scorer's table and had the scorecards collected, which he, I guess, forgot to do because I think he didn't realize that was part of the deal too. But they had to go in there and manually ask for the scorecards, not because they decided, oh, well, they're, we were going to score this fight and then just read the winner, and then we just decided at our last minute to change it. You have to score the fight no matter what. The fight went the full 15. Now, at the end there, a call was made. However, for record-keeping's sake, you still stopped in the middle of it. But if the full 15 minutes expired, it's not that you're going to read them out. No, you're not going to read them out. But you have to collect them no matter what. You have to know how that was scored for record-keeping's sake and then to release that to the public so they can make you know their own informed opinions or judgment calls about it after the fact. So that's what that was. They were asking for it, not because they all of a sudden changed their mind when they initially were going to read scorecards and they decided not to. You just need those scorecards anyway. You have to collect them. And I don't think it was Bruce Buffer or it may have been. Um, I believe it was another commission member who was asking for them. That's why. It was because Liam Kerrigan forgot to do that part. Um, now, again, if you're a conspiracy theorist, then you're going to just dismiss everything I'm saying, and that's fine. But that's what that comes from. But the initial call was made. My read on this is is that not being there really hurts us. Mark Goddard seems adamant that he was out. Liam Kerrigan, apparently from the word go, thought he was out at the end there. A couple of things caused some problems for me. You go back to like what the 56th or 53rd mark when he gets dropped and then turned. I spoke to Big John McCarthy about it, and his answer was name another name a person who does that who's not out. 
who just falls, goes limp, and lets themselves get mounted if they're not out. It's just you never heard it, and then it just gets flipped, turned over, like no defense at all. You have to be either out of your mind exhausted to the point where you can't even move, um, or you have to be unconscious. And because he was flailing after the fact, hard to say that he was exhausted. It was very, very weird. But my response to him was, unless you employ instant replay all the way back to that point, how is that relevant? Because apparently the call that was made was the one at the very, very end of the fight once time had expired, right? That was the issue. Um, so I, I I agree that he might have been out there, but to me that's immaterial according to how the rules are supposed to be enforced. So let's fast forward to the end. Was he out? I, I mean, look, can I tell on TV that he was out from my vantage point watching? I actually watched it right here at this desk. I really can't. It looked to me like he was out, but I don't know that. I don't know that. It looked to me like once the arm was released around the back of his neck, his head, you know, just like flopped back. Not like a little bit, like, like, you know, like a, a, a baby who can't hold their head up kind of falling back. And, and then like a two seconds pass, he just kind of like comes to. It looked to me like he was out, but I wasn't there. We're relying on those judges, rather those uh, officiating crew, um, to make that call, which apparently Kerrigan did. I mentioned the first problem, not going to the scores table for record-keeping's sake to get that and to tell them what his call was, right? Um, so that was the first problem. The other problem is I think folks are asking themselves, well, um, how can – I saw this brought up. Like, Well, how can Sean O'Malley just sit there on the canvas when the bout is over and you can't be saved by the bell? This one is relatively straightforward. You can be hurt – Hell, you can even be injured depending on what the nature of the injury is when a fight is over. You cannot be unconscious. So let's assume for a second, even if you don't agree, but let's assume for a second that Devalishvili was unconscious. That would be, at the end of the bout, that would be the differentiator there. You can be jacked up, but you have to be awake. And according to the officiating crew, he was not awake. But there's another issue here to me that I really didn't like. One was that even if you are absolutely certain about your call, why can't you just use instant replay to be sure? Like, what's the problem with just looking at it just to double check? Is it going to hurt you? I mean, it took forever to, you know, I guess it would delay the broadcast a little bit, but I would imagine that this would be something that would just put everyone's minds at ease, including the own referees, even if he was totally certain. It would just be nice to, like, we have this instant replay, and it's never employed. I don't, I, you know, you uh, states don't use it so you can't and then when states do use it you have a situation like this and you choose not to it's like not even just to be sure i don't like that so much but one thing i actually find that i this argument that like oh well maybe he changed his mind well the way it works is that the bout is over and if they see once the bout is over that you're unconscious folks are like he should know you're unconscious before the final bell well that can be hard to know Number one. Number two, that's not what the rules state. The rules actually allow you to look at the person once the bell rings. And when the bell, when you put your hands on the person, he gets off. If the other person in that particular transitional moment is not awake, then that's, that's what's over. But let's say for a second that at first he wasn't sure and then he changed his mind. Now, I would have, I would have liked for him to have used instant replay. Here's my only point. It's not that I want guys to just change their mind under pressure from other people. It's not that. It's that I don't care if in a, if in a referee changes his mind. Um, I don't. That doesn't bother me at all. 
I just want to see if you are going to change your mind that there be a review. Right? In other words, look at these other sports where one thing we can be sure of is people are like, was Dvalishvili out? I don't know. But here's what I do know. Probably is my guess, but I don't really know. But what I do know is in all these other sports, uh, referees and umpires get calls wrong all the time. All the time. It, 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 this is a routine thing. Expecting a perfect record from an officiating member is absurd. You, you could never do it. So most other sports, or at least many other sports anyway, at least give the officiating crew a chance to get it right. And even sometimes they still don't get it right. But it really helps them cut down on the amount of errors. So folks are like, well, he changed his mind. Well, if he changed his mind under pressure, that's no good. But apparently he did not. And more importantly, if after some consideration and talking to others and getting better information, or had he looked at instant replay, and let's say he changed his mind after that, I'd be totally okay with that. Because at least he'd be trying to review the thing. At least he'd be trying to to examine what was happening and not happening. Versus just, you know, well, here's my first gut reaction. Let's go with that. I'm, your gut reaction doesn't mean much to me. Your review means a lot more to me. Most looking forward to. Hi, Luke. With the, all the confirmed fights happening in the coming months, which one are you most excited for if you could only choose one? People are like saying Holloway Ortega. Probably. Uh, I'm actually interested in see what Colby Covington can do. I know a lot of folks might not agree with that, but if he can back up all the stuff he's been doing, he's going to put himself in a pretty interesting position. So I'll be looking forward to that as well. Um, I'll be looking, I'm, I'm curious to see if Brock Lesnar comes back, to be honest with you. I would really like to see that. I don't know that he will, but I'd really like to see that. Um, who else? Who else? Who else? Uh, well, you might be able to hear a chainsaw. There's nothing I can do about it. Construction at my house. Um, this is probably about it. I mean, there's other, there's a lot of other great ones, but those are the ones that stand out to me. Of course, Till versus Wonder Boy, stuff like that. Uh, how do you think the referee and the Devalishvili Simone controversy handled it? I think the right guy won, but I don't think he handled it all that well. How do you think referee ringside uh, ringside referee Mark Goddard handled it? I have no problem with how he handled it. People are like, oh, he's so outspoken on Twitter. So let me get this straight. When commission members don't talk to us, we get bitter about their lack of transparency. When they do talk to us, we get bitter about their use of transparency. Now, you could say, well, he's just giving his opinion. That's not transparency. That's the only opinion he's going to give. And by the way, who was it? Uh, Nick Lembo spoke to Ariel Hawani that night as well. A lot of commissions just wouldn't say anything. When a commission member who is there that night, be it an attorney uh, someone who sits on the commission themselves, a referee, or, I mean, you never see a judge, but if a judge did it, you should be thankful for that. We should encourage that. You don't have to agree with them. I'm not asking you to agree with everything Mark Goddard said, and I don't follow him on Twitter, so I didn't see, but uh, even if he was out there just, you know, slashing and burning with Twitter trolls or being having a meltdown, I'll take a meltdown over silence 10 times out of 10. We need more open dialogue with people there who work for commissions, not less. And I'm not saying that him having a Twitter S storm is the most productive form of conversation. But what I can say is that's more productive and him going on shows, by the way, that is more productive than, uh, 
you know, just not saying a word. Not I, I'll take that any day of the week. I'll take that any day of the week. Barboza actions post spinning kick. When Barboza landed that head kick and rocked Lee, the end of the fight seemed nigh. However, Barboza then got too close to Lee to follow up with a significant second blow, which led Lee to grabbing a, a hold and using his wrestling effectively to ride out the storm and regain composure. For that situation, do you give credit to Lee for showing the ability and clear thinking during a difficult spell to apply his strength? He didn't apply his strength, he applied his technique. Or do you think Barboza failed to capitalize the, the way a fighter of his caliber should have? Both. Both. Go back and watch it. There are definitely things Barboza should have done. Pushed, getting an underhook, and the way that I was taught, and I'm in no position to be teaching fighters, but it's just something that has always seemed very intuitively true to me. Putting on the back of the head and then driving it under. As you have an underhook, you can then find a hand or a bicep and then use that to separate. A lot of guys are afraid to move, but when you switch over to the back of the head and drive it, they're not going to do a whole lot of driving on you, especially if they're tired and you can move away from that. So it's some kind of like, it's like either a wrist or a bicep and a, the back of the head slash neck, um, depending on kind of exactly where they are and what they're doing. And I didn't see a lot of that. So I'll give credit to, uh, I'll say Barboza probably could have done a better job of separating there. However, there were a couple times the instinct that he had on autopilot to do that. A couple of points I'd make about that. You only have that kind of instinct and that autopilot if you have years and years and years and years of experience on that wrestling mat, period. Your body won't know to react that way unless it unless that happens. Look at junior fighters when they get rocked like that. What do they do? They just fall straight down, and they might cover up, and they might move a little bit, but they don't do what Kevin Lee did. Kevin Lee's body just went into wrestling mode without having to, I mean, could he, what kind of computations could he have been making at that point? Right? His body just reacted that way. You can only get your body to react that way when you do something like that. Okay. When you have that kind of a background, number one, number two, look at the way he cut the corner on the final takedown. So it's one thing to have just this, your body's ability to do that. The other one was then to think through and to execute technique to cut the corner to take him away from his uh, balance and put him on the ground, I'm telling you, <laughs> very hard to do. That's very hard to do anyway, much less after you've had your brain rattled. Um, I was very impressed by Kevin Lee. It was like it was like a knock that he had that Habib didn't. But at the same time, I made this point before: all champions, and he's not a champion yet, but all champions get rocked and hurt and beat up. And I, I always go back to the uh, Federal Millionenko versus Kazuyuki Fujita fight where Fujita just rocked him. And what did he do? He had to grab a hold of him and then go to his guard. And then eventually he got to his feet, hit him with a middle kick, and I think it was a left hook behind it and sat him, or maybe maybe the left and a right hook, and then sat him down and got on top. I think he submitted him from there or something. But in any case, Rampage was commentating that fight and Rampage noted in that fight, you know, that's what a champion does. That's what a champion does. So to me, uh, yes, Barboza could have handled it better, but he didn't handle it terribly. Uh, and Kevin Lee, I thought, handled it all. I mean, yes, getting hit like that is not great, but if you're going to get hit like that, how could you react? Not going to get a whole lot better than what Kevin Lee showed. Do you think the fatigue and the beating Barboza had suffered affected his decision-making there? Of course. Fatigue, well... Like, if you've ever gone for a run and you're just jogging, what do they call it? Steady state cardio? 
right? Let's say you're let's say you have a consistent pace, whatever that pace is at X number X, right? Whatever it is, every miles an hour it is, or whatever you're bringing your heart rate up to, and you just keep it at that consistent pace. You can do that for a pretty long time, or right? you can do it for a pretty long time. One of the benefits of training jujitsu, one of the benefits of training wrestling is not only is it incumbent upon you to bring intensity or focus or an attack, um, but you have to respond to another person who's also bringing focus and intensity and attack. And so there is this human will being poured on top of you and you have to swim through it. You almost don't even have control over it other than the things you can do to handle it or make it subside. But if if somebody's really really good at it you have to you have to you 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 as long as you're running at your consistent steady state cardio there's value to that right don't misunderstand me there's value in doing that but there's something else about having a human person thrash you about and then you in in, in kind having to then respond I, I believe it's different i believe it taxes the body differently i believe it taxes your spirit differently and look, you know, you see it uh, all all over gyms and MMA. Uh, fatigue makes cowards of men. I've seen that printed all over gyms everywhere. You know, it's true. It's true. When your body gets pushed to, I mean, really gets pushed, not steady state cardio, but really gets pushed. What happens? Your brain goes into this kind of fight or flight mode, mostly flight, and says, "Oh, this is not good. We should quit. We should quit. We should quit." And the good fighters are not just the guys who have good technique and a willingness to exchange and do this kind of activity, but they're the ones who can silence that. They can put that down. That's very, very hard to do. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of intensity. It takes a lot of will. Um, and and you have to not listen to what your internal biological instincts might be. When you get tired, the reason you want to stop is because your body wants you to. Right, so this is this is why to me it's like, do you think Barboza being uh, tired? He wasn't just tired because he had run ten miles at a steady pace. He was being thrashed and pulled and shoved and attacked, and that will affect that will affect you not not merely because you're tired. It's a different level of fatigue. It's the kind of fatigue that engenders these crazy thoughts in your mind that make you want to quit. And so, sure, it, it would be, and he didn't quit. So I'm not suggesting that he did. But you're always wrestling with that. You're always just trying to. It's exhausting mentally just to deal. Forget what you're feeling physically. It's exhausting mentally to deal with that kind of thing. And he was struggling with that, which anybody in that position would have. And the fact that he did as good as he did is pretty incredible, to be quite honest. Um, so I'm saying you know, Barboza, Barboza missed an opportunity. He definitely did, but you got to give credit to 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 Lee. All right. What do you make of ACB? I don't have. I haven't watched them in so long. In part because isn't one of their owners like horrifically homophobic? Frankly, that's not why I haven't watched. I haven't watched because I haven't had time. But there you go. Uh, have you heard any Diaz versus Bisping rumors? I have not, but I've not been looking either. So I don't do that whole like, oh, what have you heard? Occasionally, I hear things, right? Where um, I'll talk to people and they'll tell me things. But I don't do a whole lot of that. I don't spend a lot of time. I told you guys what a week or two ago. You guys were asking me about other managers, Nali and Malky. I occasionally talk to managers or whoever. Very little, very very little. It's a personal choice. I'm not suggesting other people can't or shouldn't. Everyone has their view. If I wanted to, it's a great way to get um, clicks on your stories to break news like that or to, um, you know, and look, there's a legitimate news value service to it as well. But it's just not something. 
that I want to do. Uh, Cubs corner, bad examples of corner talk advice, good examples. Betweens round two and three, Cubs Swanson asked his corner, am I winning or losing? And the corner man replied, you're doing great, even though he was down two rounds. I know every fighter and corner relationship has a different psychology and dynamics in every situation as well. But what was the thinking behind that comment? Didn't they even consider the possibility of him being down, or was it just a distraction from Cub focusing on the scorecards? Any other bad examples of corner talk? Of course, we have the GOAT, Edmund Tarverdian. Can you think of others? Finally, coaches who are great at it in between rounds advice and what makes them great. Yeah, I'm very hesitant to uh, question the corner in that regard. When you want to grade a corner, the, what, the things you want to grade them are is, what are they doing to put them in a position to win? That's the way you have to think about it. Lying to them might actually put them in a position to win, provided there are other things that they're saying and doing. So, for example, if they're just saying, you're doing great, keep focusing on what we're doing, you're looking good, don't worry, this is awesome, and then it gets over, maybe they soothed any anxiety he had, but they didn't give him any tactical or strategic advice. That would be a problem. I'm not suggesting that's what happened here, but... Just think about that in the future. Did they give him any of that? Um, did they, in some ways, tell him uh, uh, a way to manage the next round? That could be a problem, right? Oh, you're up to, don't worry about it. Remember the whole coast on this round thing from Misha and Brian Caraway? That would be a problem, right? But I don't mind what they're telling them about the fight, provided that they're giving them something tactical, something strategic, something potentially soothing. Um, or they're not sending them out there to the slaughter, right? Oh, you're doing great. And we're talking like they just had two 10-8 rounds and they should have been maybe stopping that fight between the, the second and third round. But if they're characterizing the fight in a certain way and yet they're doing all the other things, they're protecting their guy, they're they're giving him something to go on going forward, then I I don't have any issue. I really I tend not to get involved. Maybe Cub is a guy who deals with anxiety and fights. And his corner realizes that maybe um, they just know if they lie to him, he'll perform better. You know, who, who, who knows? Who knows? It's really, really hard to say. And I, I think looking into that, it's almost like looking into someone's relationship and how the, a couple gets along. And, and then, yes, there are some things you could look at and say, this is healthy, this is not healthy. But they also might have a, a degree of, you know, their own idiosyncrasies that may look bizarre on the outside looking in, but work for them. That's sort of how I look at it. It is a relationship, a corner and a fighter, you know, and not a romantic one, I would imagine, but sometimes it, it could be that too. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the corner vices I've heard, God, who was it? There was a guy, was it Quinn Mulhern? It may not have been Quinn Mulhern. There was a guy who fought in pride a while ago, or maybe it was dream. I think it was dream some southerner i forget his name and the only reason i remember this is his corner was like this okay take him down take him down now get on top get on top all right stand back up all right go after him you know the kinds of things that you or i would yell from the stands six beers deep that wasn't very helpful right or you know priscilla Cachuera's corner sending her back out there to just get absolutely massacred and you know defending the practice. I mean, this is abhorrent, right? Negligent and frankly uh, absurd. But telling a guy that he's winning a fight if they do all the other things, not a problem to me.
Uh, all right. Someone says, this is like the MMA version of the Sam Harris versus Jordan Peterson debate on truth. You guys need to like... Does everyone in MMA <laughs> follows the exact same academics? Well, why is that? I'm trying to wrap my head around that. How is it that everybody only knows the same ones? Like, surely, not that there's nothing wrong. I, I, I just, I literally, here is an example. Look what I'm listening to. I listened to this on yesterday's show, or uh, yesterday's uh, dog walk, just to prove it to you. I'm not even here, sitting here lying. Uh, here, let me show this to you. I had heard about it, and I wanted to see it, or hear it for myself, rather. So I pulled it up, right? I'm about, let's see, so I can see on camera here. I'm about a little over halfway into, can you see that? The Sam Harris debate with uh, Ezra Klein. And so far, I think both guys have made some good points, although I think Sam's probably made some better ones. Um, so it's not that I'm opposed to Sam Harris. I saw Jordan Peterson uh, do another series of um, interviews for his book, which I have not read, 12 Rules for Life or something. I have nothing against Jordan. Uh, I, th these are fine gentlemen to follow. But... Uh, insofar as what I can tell, anyway. But, and I think I have Sam Harris's book here. Yes. As a matter of fact, I have Sam Harris's book. Do I not? Yes, I do. So, uh, so I have nothing against this gentleman, as you can clearly tell. However, it appears in MMA that everyone follows the exact same academics all the time. And I, I am trying to like understand where that's coming from. Um, there are like, go read about Paul DeMio. Forget about Jordan Peterson. Go read about, he's fine, but for the moment anyway, go read about what Paul DeMio is doing. This seems not only more relevant to our discussions here, but this is exciting stuff on the frontier of new ideas. Um, but everyone follows the same ones. I don't really quite understand that. There's a value in that, but there's a value in looking around as well. Here, you know what? In addition to Paul Demio, let me give you another one that I've been really uh, happy about. It's easy read. How about this one? Here, he want a good... Here, Luke's book recommendations. Here's another one. Tim Wu, The Attention Merchants. I finished this not too long ago. There's even dust on that. Look at that, huh? Look at that dust. Uh, Tim Wu, professor of law at Columbia, was a former Supreme Court clerk. Um, inventor of the term net neutrality. And this book is about the nature of advertising, its historical purpose, and how it has a corrosive effect uh, socially and even intellectually. And the way in which our businesses have used the advertising model has had a, uh, and so the history of it has had a really, uh, a, a much more pronounced effect on our lives than even we are really able to understand. So there you go. Here, spread it around. All right. Appreciation for Kevin Lee. A year ago, I hated Kevin Lee and couldn't wait for Kiesa to beat him. Then I got a little used to him, but was still rooting for Tony to beat him because I was just a Ferguson fan and Lee was still annoying. But now, this person writes, he grew on me a lot. And he's become an exceptional fighter. And after listening to him on Rogan's podcast, I'm fully convinced in that. He's intelligent, funny. He talks trash more carefully. So was it just me that I didn't like him before, or he changed and developed a ton during the years with a fighter and a person? I think a couple of things here. It's a great question, actually. 
I think a couple of things. Someone also says here, it's also green. I've done a 180 on this guy also. <clears throat> Always has the unique point of view when he talks as opposed to the generic fighter talk. Seems like a great guy now with an interesting perspective. And then other people saying, interestingly, I hadn't thought about this part. I think the Tony loss, this person writes, was the best thing that could have happened to him. Uh, he was being himself. He's being himself more now. He always made it a point to say how much he learns from each fight. A lot of guys say that, but very few actually display signs they've evolved. Staff infection notwithstanding. Lee's ability to neutralize Barboza's guard clearly showed improvement from when he was stuck in Tony's guard. As for the S talking, he's toned it way down while still being able to be confident and show who he is. I am now a fan. All that being said, I think Khabib will probably still smash him, which is fine. Um, what has changed? I do think he has matured a little bit. Remember, he's only 25 years old. He's been in the UFC since he was, what, like, when did he make his UFC debut? Right? He, he is very, very young. He is. He made his UFC debut in 2014, four years ago. He was 21 years old. I think, number one, he's just gotten, you know, he's still very, very young, but a little older, a little wiser. Maturity never hurts. Number two, look, he's got a lot of opinions, and he's not afraid to share them. And he shares them on sometimes very controversial things uh, about maybe race or income or about a fighter's ability or somebody who's – he doesn't mind slaying sacred cows. Oh, everybody loves this guy. Let me blast him. You know, Remember he said Gaethje versus Poirier wasn't championship level and, and, and other things like that. So, you know, look, if you have a lot of really loud opinions – um, initially anyway, or and maybe for a long time, that might rub some people the wrong way. But there's nothing like getting a great win to get you on your people on your side in MMA. You know, you, you've seen it over and over again. People can hate on a guy, but if he keeps winning, especially wins like in a dominant fashion that he did, I'm not, you know, if you ride out a decision, maybe not, but like you're out there just putting it on a guy like that, or you have exciting fights, people will begin to open up, up to you. And I also think you're right. You know, here's a guy who has an interesting life. I asked him why he always uses that 25 to life hashtag. In his Instagram post, there's a good story behind it, right? You should hear him talk about it. You should hear him talk about how he grew up in Detroit and what he saw and what he expected out of his life and how he's not even, you know, he's just glad to be alive at this point. You know, he's got a really interesting perspective. And I think he's got it, by the way, it translates to the game. He's got a lot of unique entries into certain takedowns. He's got, he clearly thinks about the game at a higher level. He's a smart competitor. And I just think it sometimes it takes time those things to develop even if you don't have a big mouth and if you have a big mouth it can take even more time or it can take more time only because someone gets this idea of you and then they have to walk it back and look he might piss you off in the future too let's let's never forget that but you know this is the thing that mma media sometimes get the benefit of that is hard to translate to the audience when you talk to a person and you're not necessarily a fan of this guy or that guy and you see somebody who you can clearly tell is maybe they're right or they're wrong but they're at least noodling through issues and trying to trying to get at the heart of something and being a little different. It's not pulling blood from stone. And then they go out there and you can see them get better and better and better. Now they're starting to get some seriously good wins. You know, it's impressive. It's impressive. It's very impressive. Uh, and I just think Kevin Lee is finally, finally starting to do that for some people. As I mentioned, he'll still be a polarizing figure for a while, but may, maybe, maybe Saturday was something of a um of a corner turning. That being said, he's got to make weight. He's got to make weight. I think that's going to haunt him a little bit reputationally until he gets that thing figured out. And he says he's going to hire a nutritionist. So we shall see. Uh, here's an interesting question. Is Alexander Gustafson overrated? Luke, I'm a big fan of Alexander Gustafson, but do you think he's overrated? He's the number one contender in the light heavyweight division on the back of finishing Glover and decisioning Blahovich, but has losses to arguably the best fighters that come through the division in the last five to ten years. 
DC Jones, AJ, as well as being dominated by Phil Davis. Now, that was a long time ago. I'd like to see how they fought now, but okay. I know light heavyweight is thin on the ground for contenders, but do you think Gus is overrated? I do not, but it depends how you rate him. His reputation seems to be built on the fact that he nearly beat John Jones, forgetting the fact that DC beat him handily, and AJ leveled him. Well, AJ leveled him, but DC got rocked with that knee. There's no denying that. That was interesting. He has fought twice in two and a half years and seems to be on those sidelines again for a few months now. How much do you think his inactivity has hurt his progress? We'll, that, we'll only know that when we see it. And how do you think his concern, excuse me, and do you think his concern I have is mainly due to the lack of the fighters, top level fighters in that division? Uh, the fact that Shogun, who was on a three fight win streak and is hovering in the top five of the division, I think says it all. I do not think he is overrated, but this really depends on how you rate him. I rate him as clearly below the very, very top tier of that division. Now, um, would he beat Anthony Johnson in a rematch? I mean, Anthony Johnson's not competing anymore, so that seems highly speculative. So let's put him to the side. Would he beat Daniel Cormier? I would like to see it. I thought he put Daniel Cormier through the paces. Could he beat John Jones? I'd like to see it. I would favor John Jones in that contest, but you get the idea. I would like to see it. I actually thought John Jones's point on Twitter was fairly accurate. Like, whatever the gap was in the hands, I've caught up to that. And that's not going to be the same anymore. But then again, Gustafson got him down on the ground too. So, um, so sure, so sure. Like I rate him very highly. But if whenever you say someone's overrated, the, after the Jones fight, there were people being like, "Oh, he beat Jones," which I understand is a point of controversy and contention. Okay. Uh, and then after the DC fight, no one was thinking that necessarily. But I think people were saying he's right up there with him. But what does that mean? He's right up there with him. Because he's not right up there with him. He's clearly a step below them, which isn't to say he couldn't be up there if he got another opportunity at him. And I would like to see it. But as it stands, he's not. He lost to those guys, in my judgment, fair and square. But I understand at least one of those is a bit controversial. But then after that, you saw DC, yes, get put a little bit through the paces, but ultimately win. And then you saw Jones smoke DC at 214. So then you have to ask yourself, now, you want to play too much MMA math, but clearly Jones as he always has, continues to get a lot better. How would Gustafson fare in that regard? I don't know. I don't know. But my, my sense is that there are those two guys who are elite beyond elite, and he's right below that. Uh, permanently, I don't know. But for now, yes. So in my judgment, he's not overrated. He's rated exactly where he needs to be. All right. Let us go now to the Twitter machine. You can shoot me a tweet at LThomasNews, and you can use the hashtag ChatRappers, and I will get to it. Now, uh, all right. If you could only choose one fight to watch, which will you choose? Holloway versus Ortega or Miocic versus DC? Holloway versus Ortega. Easy call for me. Easy call. Um, let's not forget Habib didn't make weight three times in the UFC, including missing weight and canceled the Tony fight. Nobody talks about it. Kevin Lee missed weight and has staff and still fought Tony. I remember last year fans were talking about Habib going to 170. Fair point. I will leave that there. The the I think the appeal of Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson is that they are able to discuss complex and meaningful ways. It's simple enough to resonate with many people. I can say that about three dozen other academics. They are not unique in that regard. 
I, I agree with that characterization that, that, that those things are true, but they are not exclusive to them in any capacity whatsoever. Not true. I just showed you this one. So can Tim Wu. I'm not showing you. I literally once had to read this paper by this Kiwi author talking about the nature of existence. And there was one sentence there we had to break down, which was water. He was trying to define water. Water is the watery stuff of our acquaintance. This like borderline tautology. Uh, we're not talking about that. Like, again, I, I, I have the guy's book. I listen to, I mean, you know what I mean? What do you want to say? I like them too. I have nothing against them. But this idea that like, oh, they're able to discuss complex things in ways that the rest of us can understand. Yeah, tons of academics are that way. Not they're not writing for other academics. Uh, if you, yeah, sorry, has the UFC ever done something as egregious as paying a fighter not to fight so they can release them while the fighter is ranked? You mean like Leslie Smith? I don't know. You mean besides that? I don't know. Kevin Lee said on the JRE podcast he relied on skills he's developed through dance, the ability to maintain equilibrium and vision while spinning. Lomachenko, Jerry Rice, also dance proponents. There you go. Interesting. Someone says, uh, camera quality has been upgraded. Even my mom notices it. Shouts to your mom. That sounded terrible, but okay. I meant it in a good way. Serious question. Does Mo Salah deserve to win the Ballon d'Or? Also, what do you make of the Wenger being out, fam? Uh, yeah, so I was talking to people about this on Twitter with Wenger being, um, or Arsene Wenger leaving Arsenal after, what, 20 years or so? Something like that. Uh, my only thought about this is, and everyone brought up Sir Alex Ferguson as a contrary to the argument, which is fine, you can do that, because he at least had some kind of system of rejuvenation inside of his own uh, managerial op uh, operations. But it seems to me like there might be a case for term limits for managers. Again, there might be exceptions here or there. I understand that. But it's pretty clear that like, by any estimation, what Wenger did for Arsenal was revolutionary and his success as the greatest coach deserves to be acknowledged. But it's also pretty true that um, at this point, holding like here's where you don't want to be. You don't want to be in a place where you have a coach. Forget if his name is Arsene Wenger or anybody else. But you can say, despite years of fairly not exceptional performance, yeah, I know they won the FA Cup last year and, and they might win the Europa League this year. But generally, I mean, they're going to finish, what, sixth this year maybe? In the Premier League, Arsenal, I haven't looked at the stand, the ratings recently, or the, the rankings, pardon me. But the idea is that whatever his best work was, was before. And that you can continually just surf on and say, well, he's been our best coach, and he's been our best coach, and he's been our best coach. Well, if you just constantly surf on that idea, you'll never have another one to potentially challenge that. right? Because this is an argument that can be repeated ad infinitum as long as that person exists. right? So it's a really poor argument to defend. The question is, what is he doing now? Um, and the argument now is that there's probably a case to have him um, uh, transition out like he did and bring in somebody else. So I'm totally in favor of it. I grant that there are other people who you could be not as easily make that argument. You, you know, again, Sir Alex Ferguson was brought up. But I think a lot of coach athletes have a natural shelf life at any sport. They have this much time, and then they naturally get pushed out. Coaches, as you can see, or managers in this case, they don't. Uh, at least not in the case of somebody who's a, this part of this institution. Uh, and I think that can get a little bit of a problem towards the end of that run, um, which you saw here. And should Mo Salah win the Ballon d'Or? Probably so. What a year that guy's had, or season, rather. Um, okay. With Danis and Lovato fighting this weekend and the recent success of Dern and Tonin, are there any BJJ practitioners you would like to see transition into MMA? Whose game would work the best for MMA grappling? Ooh. 
Well, so that'd be that's that's often hard to tell because that involves things you can't know just from watching jujitsu. But if you're asking me like who's really exciting in jujitsu, who I'd like to see, who's got like a really fast dynamic style, Edwin Najmi. Edwin Najmi has a really, really exciting style. Fast guard, man. Really has a nasty, you know, triangle and um, just wraps up things quickly and moves into position and is explosive. I really like what he's doing. Hanato Kanuto has done a lot of good work recently. Um, I'm trying to think about some other ones that I like. I always thought Abraham Marte had a really good style. Um, big man jiu-jitsu who could, or a big man who could play small man jiu-jitsu, but I don't know what he's up to these days. Um, who else? The problem is you're looking at a lot of guys who just are, you know, you have to work on the double guard pull. Tim Spriggs. Tim Spriggs, very athletic, good judo, good grips, right? Likes to play the top game a lot. Um, I like those. I like those. Uh, let's see. Do you think Kevin Lee did his brand some good by going on Joe Rogan's podcast? He spoke well and was quite knowledgeable. I enjoy watching his fights, but I find his trash talk to be very cringe and desperate. Uh, seems like he did based on the, the, the feedback I've gotten. You guys seem to have very nice things to say about him. Lucas Cyborg, the most hated fighter in the UFC. She does 350K pay-per-view buys against Holly Holm, and they said Cyborg wasn't the reason it sold uh, that well, and we know damn well we would be blaming Cyborg if the pay-per-view did under like 200K. Well, there's something to be said for the fact that Holly Holm clearly benefited heavily from the win of Ronda Rousey, and that has shown in her Fox ratings against Valentina Shevchenko. That's shown in her other performances in the Octagon subsequently, even in losses, not all of them, but many of them. I think it was probably the combination of the two. It wasn't because of Holly Holm, but the pairing of Holly Holm and Cyborg lifted it to the numbers that it did. What do you expect from Dylan Danis' Bellator debut this weekend? If they matched him up right, I expect him to make short work of his opponent. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be... Thurman. Corrigan tweeting stupid things. There's Dermot Corrigan tweeting dumbass things. Hamas scored 36 goals and gave 41 assists in 111 games during his three years at Madrid. Won seven trophies, including uh, Champions Leagues and La Liga title. Didn't got that badly for him. Yeah, the team did well, but the question is, uh, the marginalization that he suffered, him and Morata, although Morata has not done all that well at Chelsea, was the major issue. In fact, he wasn't even on the squad list for the second Champion League victory. So that's a really stupid argument. Um, what happened with Gervonta Davis? So Gervonta Davis was scheduled to be on my show and, uh, and of course, several other shows on the network and uh, just ghosted. Like, didn't call. His manager didn't even try to say anything. And the PR people were furious with him and apologized to us profusely. So now, whenever he talks on Twitter, <laughs> I like to just joke about how it's the best interview I've ever had. I didn't even, like, care about talking to him. But I want to have him on because, you know, he's currently doing good things as a boxer. I'll legitimately, of course, who could deny it? But it was just hilarious, you know. Um, has there ever been a fighter on the UFC roster, past or present, that you thought you could beat in the cage? No. Have you heard of any fighters speaking out either on or off the record about Leslie Smith's situation? Off the record, plenty. If so, are the majority in support of her? Yes. And do they think she has, do they think what she got was coming to her? No. What's your favorite Rage Against the Machine song? Ooh. Um, Down Rodeo is a good one. 
Has there ever been a time where a sport goes on a strict testing and then gets rid of it? Do you think the UFC will get rid of USADA in the future? I don't think they're going to get rid of USADA, nor do I think they should get rid. I know people think this is crazy, nor do I think they should get rid of some kind of anti-doping apparatus. I think that the organization, in this case the UFC, and the fighters and their representatives, in this case, or what would eventually be the union, would have to come to some kind of agreement. So I think this claims about, we're worried about the health. Well, the NBA has a very um, uh, powerful players league, and we're not really too worried about the health of their players. Well, this is different. This is fighting. We have to worry about the health and safety. This is the argument to me. Is there any reason to believe that the amount of damage done or fights that currently take place are somehow safer now because of USADA? We're living in the age of Justin Gaethje and Priscilla Cachuera catching a beating from Valentina Shevchenko. You're going to sit here and tell me that, oh, we have less injuries now? We have less concussions now? We have less TKOs now? Um, and yes, the sport is changing, but there's this notion that it's gotten safer under USADA is total fantasy. There might be a change in the competitive balance of things, right? Vitor Belfort was knocking everybody out, but now the change there is like, well, Vitor was knocking everybody else out before. Well, now look at him. Now he's getting crushed every fight. So like it didn't reduce the amount of damage. It just shifted the, the balance. And there's an argument to made about how fair that is. Fine, we can have that argument. That's fine. But uh, this notion that like all of a sudden fighting got safer. No, it didn't. No, it didn't at all. Uh, do you think... What do you make of the trash quality Thompson Till poster? I don't know. It's hard for me. I mean, it is trash, but what do you want me to say? Like, is it trash and they were trying to be something else? Or is it trash because they just didn't care? That would be the only reason I would ever like examine that. You know. Uh Luke, how do you rate the influx of Dagestani fighters making the way? into larger American companies. Do you reckon Habib and Megamed Sharapov could lead the way for a period of dominance for fighters from the Caucasus? Absolutely. Absolutely, I could. We should not oversell it necessarily, but that region has been pretty good about producing combat athletes for a very, very long time. Um, I would expect many more to be coming out of there as well. Let's go back to the top here. Thoughts on Holm versus Anderson. I think we talked about this. I think we talked about this uh, last week. I actually really liked that fight. So go back to, if you can, go back to last week's chat because I think that's where we cover this in greater detail. Let me refresh this real quick and we'll answer a few more here in the comments. Mm -mm 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 -mm. ACB already did that one. Gustafson, Thompson Till. Um, what are your thoughts on UFC buying out her contract and do you feel she has any sort of solid legal recourse here I don't know the legal specifics enough to even possibly weigh in on this it does seem that the two facts are related here that they did this to cut her out at the knees it's interesting it's like does the UFC really take the union unionization efforts by fighters seriously my hunch is that they don't on the other hand When given an opportunity to affect it, they'll probably just take up what, like, they'll just, like, we don't really care about this, but if we've got an opportunity to, like, you know, cross our T's and dot our I's, why not? That's sort of how I look at it. Um, 
But in terms of the legal recourse, you'd have to ask Lucas Middlebrook, her attorney. And here's the thing about this. Like, I like Leslie Smith a lot. I do think that, I mean, it's just a hunch. It's just an intuition. I do think that their Project Spearhead efforts probably cost her a little bit here. Um, Ally Quinta is probably a lot more valuable to the UFC than than she is. I don't realize that she's ranked, but she's ranked, I think, in a division where there's only 19 women. It's not not that it's easy to get ranked necessarily, but it's not nearly as difficult as, as it is to be ranked number 11 like Ally Quinta was in that shark tank that is the lightweight division. So there's that. I think also that um, um, they just, in terms, look, you can, the weigh-ins, the UFC gets funky. Remember when they had DeMarquez Johnson fill in on short notice and then he missed weight and they cut him? Like the UFC is like, and I realize that she didn't miss weight, she made weight, but I'm just saying around the weigh-ins or when Anthony Pettis tried to renegotiate and they or the or get more money, they were like, nah, fam. And they went ahead and hired um, Ally Quinta to fill in. They get they get weird around those weigh-ins. So like I can see an argument that also that yes, my hunch is that this has everything to do with Project Spearhead, not because they're necessarily threatened in a major way, but if again, if you can cut a, a potential rival out at the knees, why not do it? And then also I think the other issue here is that they don't like being leveraged at weigh-ins at all. Trying to renegotiate a contract, they don't take kindly to that. Missing weight, again, Aspen Lab was the issue here, but they just get a little bit funky around those times, and it's something to consider. But her legal argument, I leave that to a lawyer. Uh, again, is this the most egregious thing that the promotion has done? No, I think uh, getting rid of Jason High and maybe right up there with one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. That was so absurd. Um. But this is bad potentially as well. Okay, it is 2.30. So let's do this. Let us end our efforts here. I appreciate everyone tuning in. Please give the video a like. Subscribe to MMA Fighting below. Uh, there is Bellator this weekend. Hoffman Estates, Bellator 198. So that should be kind of interesting to watch. Dylan Danis, uh, Frank Mir, Fedor Milianenko, and many, uh, many others. Um, again, I'll end it as I began the chat today. Thank you to the guy who uh, sent the correction in. Sorry, I didn't recognize how right you were before, but I got it in just the same. So I really appreciate that. All right, guys, I'm out of here. This will be up on iTunes.com slash promotion practice. And until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>